Welcome to the free podcast that I aim to entertain, inform and inspire you. If you are already following the podcast, thank you. If you are not, I would really appreciate you clicking that button. It's a small gesture from you, which is a massive gesture for us. Enjoy the episode. John Markar, where do I start? John has had a fantastic career so far, and it's a pleasure to introduce him to the podcast. John is an outstanding presenter and one of the hosts of the Driven Chat radio show and podcast. But before starting this podcast, I listened to many of the podcasts too, and to do with cars, business and whatnot, and just, just general life. But the Driven Chat podcast always standed out to me as one of the better and more high quality ones, which is why it's an absolute pleasure for me to get to interview John and for you to listen to the man himself. John, welcome to the podcast. How are we? Thank you very much. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks. Fantastic. Um, a little question I'd like to start off with is what ignited your passion for cars? Oh, um, I think a common theme. It's it's a family influence. For me, it was dad as a, as a very, very small child. He ran workshops and uh, was a mechanic by trade and still to this day works in the motor trade. So I have very fond memories of running around workshops in uh, just outside South London in Croydon and running around dirty workshops whilst you know, nothing fairly special getting worked on. We're talking about of the era, Ford Escorts and Ford Cortinas and Ford Orions, that sort of thing being worked on. But it, it, it just, yeah, the smell, that environment, I, I have very, very vivid memories of probably being yeah, three or four years old. And then, of course, from that world, it was often the event side of things. So we'd attend motorsport events or... Uh, car shows just that sort of typical world really and I think from there it was just it was ingrained and so is that what made you go into the events world as an adult and taking that forward I think so yeah it was definitely a big influence into it I mean I I kind of I fell into the industry really in the sense of I didn't really have a plan I never really knew how I was going to get to where I wanted to be and on the same front I didn't really know what that where I wanted to be was and I, I'm still perhaps don't it's a it's an interesting one but I I think having started my working world I realized very quickly or certainly within within two two or three years or so of trying to work in proper job corporate world wearing suits that sort of stuff that um, life is painfully short and I don't want to be somebody that kind of wishes that one day something better will happen. It was a case of, no, I need to make that better thing happen myself and go and, go and pursue it and go and find it, really. And what made you want to do that with a part of, apart from the boring corporate who What in you decided, I want to be creative? Um, I think creativity is something you're born with. I think it's it's something that you either have or you don't and the the passion and the desire to build and kind of involve yourself evoke yourself into a into a world where you can kind of make some make some shots or do a creation um it yeah you kind of you're kind of born with it really and i think for me it was I left college. Well, in fact, I, I walked out of sixth form college with no qualifications at all. I was I was that kind of bratty idiot boy that went, oh, this is crap. You know, all my friends, a large number of my friends wanted to go to university. Many of them knew what they wanted to do. And I, I didn't. I didn't really have much of a plan. If I was intelligent enough, I would have gone into medicine and been a doctor, but I'm not. So uh, I that, 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 was, that was never really an option. Um, and in fact, the only real career 
opportunity or, or, or thought train I had about what I wanted to do with my life was to be a mechanic. Um, the simple yep. reason is I, I saw my dad doing it. It looked interesting, obviously loved cars, loved the idea of taking things apart and seeing how they worked. Um, my dad actually, interestingly, almost begged me not to do that. Um, and I think that at that time he was expecting the world to be transformed into this kind of computerized electrified uh he was a bit ahead of himself actually i'd say i think he was he was probably 10 to 15 years ahead of himself in in that prediction because it i think cars generally did carry on being nuts and bolts for quite some time uh, and in fact still are to this day aren't they really but um yeah he really didn't want me to go down that route because he he just saw it as a as a miserable task and um and i think he could see my passion for cars and he didn't want my passion to become my day-to-day work. Yeah. Um, so we reached a compromise in that he said, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go out and buy a, an old car that we can work on together. That could be your first car. So a cheap and cheerful little mini, a 1989 mini um, that we bought and we worked on. And I'm so glad that it did work out in that way. Yeah, we did it. We did it that way. And I was able to learn a bit about mechanics in that world as opposed to going and getting a job uh, in the field. So, um, so yeah, anyway, th- on, along that same sort of line, I was uh, sat in college. I'd, I'd done high school. I went to sixth form college. And as I say, I just had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I had no real plan. At one point, I wanted to be a gardener. At another point, I wanted to go into marine biology. I just didn't have a clue. And there was nothing really that was kind of like really pulling at my heartstrings and saying, you know, this is, this is what you want to do. I had this fear almost that I would go to university, study for three or four years, get to the end of my degree and go, oh, I don't, I don't want to do this at all. Um, yeah. And, you know, it would have had to have been paid for. I wasn't in a position, you know, we weren't a wealthy family by any means. So it wasn't like we could just splash out five or six grand on a university course. And if it didn't work out, it didn't really matter. It was, that was kind of like a big thing for me. So, um, yeah, I, <laughs> as a frustrated 17-year-old, 17, 17 um, was sat in an exam hall. And I'll never forget this because I think of it, I think back on it now as what an idiot. But I was sat in an exam hall at Wimbledon College and uh, I can't even remember what the exam was, but I, I didn't want to be there. I had no real focus. It was for AS level, so year one. And um, my head of year walked in and I was clearly talking to somebody else. The exam hadn't started. And he said, look, if you don't want to be here, don't spoil it for other people. You can just go. And I did. I got up and walked yeah. out. And at that point, I kind of walked out of sixth form, sixth form college and went... Oh, uh, what have I done? You know, like a bit of a, it was just a, it was just a silly move really. Um, but what it did is it instilled in me this kind of realization of, um, right, I need to fix this now because I've put myself in this scenario and there's only one person that's going to get me through it and get me out of it. And that's, that's me. So I ended up going and working part-time for a, um, in fact, I was working full-time for a company I was working part-time for uh, in a garden centre, very yeah. mundane work. Uh, and then from there, I, just, I decided, no, I want to earn some money, and I ended up going into property. So okay. what I've always had is a bit of a gift of the gab, and being able to talk, went into property. And then, yeah, it was in that kind of property job, suits and ties and company cars, that sort of stuff, that within two or three years, I was like, do you know what? This, th- this life isn't for me at all. I want, to be, I want to be car-centric. I want to be doing more stuff with cars. And so you started in is event management, is that correct, at Single Marquee? Is that, uh, is that the first step or what was before yeah, that? Yes, Single Mark events, that was, yeah, that's a little throwback. So I, yeah, I think what made that sort of chapter of my life quite interesting was I started earning quite good money in the property job. Um, it was a chap 
in my office called uh, John Richards, who was, I'd say, in his mid-60s at the time. And he loved his cars, was extremely successful. He'd started out, as I did in property, as a teenager, earned yep. an awful, awful lot of money, had a lovely house, had a lovely collection of cars. And I remember thinking, God, you know, if I work as hard as John, I could get those lovely cars as well. And I had the opportunity to go to the Nürburgring with a few friends. And I remember talking to John in the office and talking about it, and he was all excited on my behalf. I went over there. And then at that point, earning the money that I was on, I was able to, to uh, buy a little track day car. So I bought a little MX-5 and started doing track days with friends. So we'd yeah. book onto other people's events, turn up and have a fun time. Um, but then what we ended up doing was we thought, well, how much does it cost to hire a circuit? You know, we were all earning okay money. Could we go and buy you know, a day at a circuit build a day for ourselves and then effectively sell some tickets onto some friends and, and have a, a bit more of a track day company. Um, and the track day company was kind of born. So I then ended up teaming up. So good, really good friend of mine, Al, Al Clark, who um, has, yeah, he's, he's kind of very well known in the automotive industry now as a, as a filmmaker. Uh, but at the time he was running a little company that he'd set up with another guy called Nick and his uncle. And that was single mark events, which was trading as Mazda on track. So, uh, yeah, some typical man maths was done in a pub, which was uh, what's the most common, frequently sold sports car in the UK. And it was a Mazda MX-5. We both had Mazda MX-5s. And we were like, oh, well, you know, there we go. That's the solution. Let's start a company called Mazda on track. So Alistair started that. Um, and then as time went on, I would find free days that I had to go and help run those events. So I'd go along yeah. and help the track days, something, you know, really simple stuff, like just helping set up the day, helping the customers that turn up on the day. That evolved as time went on into a bit of in-car tuition and being able to get a better understanding of car control. And yeah, that was uh, that was kind of the, the light bulb moment for me that, that it switched on, especially having been to the Nürburgring and then doing... A, few bits and pieces in the UK circuits like Brands Hatch and Silverstone and we were doing car control days and it was kind of like no this is that, that was the first time I had that kind of like aha this this feels good it was working with people it was creative because of course we were building these events and there was a bit of traveling around involved I was seeing corners of the UK that I hadn't seen before I was seeing corners of Europe that I hadn't seen before but I was doing it all very much as a part-time thing yeah. Um, so yeah, for me, it was another leap of faith, really a bit like stupidly walking out of the exam hall. For me, it was, um, no, I, I, I kind of have, feel like I have to quit the job. I have to quit the, the day job and go and pursue this full time. And in hindsight, I'm glad, I'm certainly glad I did it, but it was, again, it was poorly thought out because of course I went from earning really quite good, comfortable money, certainly for a, a guy in his very early twenties, um, to earning basically nothing, to, to going into a world where you might make 100 quid a day if you're doing like a good day rate or um, you know, just basically trying to claw things in. So again, what happened very quickly is I ended up kind of going into temping agencies and I was doing really, really boring, mundane day jobs, um, call centers, you know, that sort of stuff. But then every free day that I had, any day off that I had in the week, I was out planning an event, running an event, being at an event of some variety and just trying to network with as many people as possible, yeah. trying to trying to build up conversations and contacts. The great thing about, of course, the automotive industry is that we're all in it because we love it. And therefore, you can kind of get away with being as social as you like because, of course, you can just talk nonsense. You can talk about cars with random people for yeah. as long as you like. And, of course, it's those relationships you end up building that, for me, certainly, opened up a number of different opportunities moving forward. So... Um, 
yeah, that was the kind of that was the kind of birth of it. That my my entry into the events world was a was a little a pokey little track day company, which is still running to this day, and um, yeah, getting involved with helping people on track, and yeah, that was that was that really. So that was my birth into it, and then it all kind of went a bit crazy beyond that point. I mean, it sounds like I'm a bit stupid. I stayed in my exams. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did them, and I, I, so, but I didn't get to meet Sterling Moss. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. So that would have been, um, again, this bizarre chapter of um, events. And again, it was just through networking with people, really. Um, I ended up meeting somebody that, who turned out to be, firstly, a very, very good friend. He's one of my best friends in the world. But secondly, he was somebody that also opened up um, many avenues of opportunity. And that's a chap called Tim Hutton. And Tim, at the time when I met him, he was writing, I think, for a magazine called Road, uh, which I don't think exists anymore. But we, um, apologies if you can hear a sandwich van putting up outside our office. It's the only, about the only thing our soundproofing doesn't cure. Um, so, so Tim... Much time yet. Yeah, 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 I know. It's a bit early, isn't it? So Tim, as I say, was writing for, uh, or, or he was an editor, I think, for, for this magazine. Uh, Tim had quite an interesting background in that he used to work for Gumball 3000. He used to work for the Gumball Rally as a graphic designer, then kind of enveloped himself into the world of publishing. And um, Tim, I met at the Nürburgring as well on another trip. And uh, we just hit it off. We just got talking and he ended up saying, you know, if you ever if you're ever keen to do some writing, if you want to be involved in the kind of publishing side of the automotive industry as well i'm happy to you know give you a shot really and and have a go at it so i did so i ended up doing a bit of writing freelance motoring journalism that sort of yeah. stuff which again was great and again zero qualifications to do it i i, I had no i did a, an english um in, english literacy literacy and english language gcse which i did absolutely fine at but i was by no means i saw myself as a writer it just wasn't it wasn't a thing I imagined. And uh, yes, one of the first things that I ended up doing was getting sent off to uh, the RAC, the Royal, Automot- Royal Automobile Club in London, uh, for an event with Jaguar Cars where they were talking about, I'm trying to think what it was they were launching, but they had this big hoo-ha about the disc brake. They were, they, were, they were celebrating a certain racing car in history, D-type or C-type, uh, first car to have disc brakes. And there on the the podium kind of talking to everyone there from the press uh, was Sir Sterling Moss, which was incredible. Because, of course, prior to that, as a kid, I'd seen Sterling Moss driving his cars around at Goodwood. And, of course, I'd heard this accolade of what he was like as a man. And there I had the opportunity to to meet him and to talk to him and, and, and interview him. And it, it was, yeah, quite an incredible thing, really, because, again, I was young, impressionable and excited to be there just... It was that contrast. I think the day before I was probably working in a call centre for a travel company and then the day after I'm sat in a suit talking to a, an absolute motorsport legend at uh, at the RAC. And um, yeah, there was, a good, there was a good few years of that sort of level of contrast of it all, one day looking like you've got the best, most exciting career in the world and the next day you're helping somebody find lost baggage through a call centre. Um, <laughs> But yeah, there have been many opportunities like that and many days like that. But yeah, so Sterling Moss was uh, an incredible man. In fact, I, I met, uh, over the years, I then ended up 
meeting him a few more times and talking to him and yeah quite fascinating to unpick a brain like that who's lived through uh, a number of different eras and uh, yeah he made all sorts of terribly terribly un-PC remarks and comments about uh, the very attractive women that used to work for his race teams back in the day and you'd be like oh <laughs> can't really say that anymore so I think, um, but you know he was at that age I think he was he was yeah late late 80s so I think it was kind of like one of those okay you know that's that's okay we won't include that in the interview but <laughs> glad of glad of seen the animated side of your face to say it. oh brilliant um so it seems like you've taken leaps and jumps where you can you've felt, felt the fear I'd say um mm. what made you have the oh, the confidence or the naivety to do that I think it all stems back from my teenage years really um and it was a a tragic set of circumstances in you know as the story goes but what it's done is it's instilled a, an ability to I wouldn't say it's a funny one I almost said bravery but I don't think it is bravery I think it's more I'm not adverse to risk let's put it that way and at all the times that I've made a questionable decision with my work life or private life or or anything I've always been a bit uh, I'm aware of what could go wrong yeah, at the, at the time of walking out of that exam hall, I was aware of what could go wrong. At the time of walking out of my well-paid estate agency job I, and giving up my company car, I was aware of what could go wrong. Um, but um, yeah, to cut a very long story short, as a as a fifteen turning sixteen year old, my my mum passed away quite suddenly, and and I think what that did, which is obviously a, a massively traumatic and upsetting time, what it did to me is it made me realise very, very quickly at a very young age, a very crucial age, really, as a teenager, that you have no, ultimately, you have no control over what happens in life. I think as an early teenager, I remember I kind of mapped out what life was going to be like moving forward. I'd maybe go to university and get a well-paid job. And then ideally, by the time I was mid-20s to late-20s, I'd have a nice car and maybe I'd have a house. Maybe I would have met somebody. And then by 30, I'd definitely be married and I'd have even more nice cars and an even nicer house. And you kind of build, you end up building this this future vision. And we were very family-centric as a, as a child. You know, like Sundays would be, we'd go to the grandparents' house and we'd have a Sunday roast together and it would all be lovely. And this vision of, well, that's what my life's going to be like when I grow up and I'm going to have kids and we'll have uh, mum and dad round for Sunday roasts and it'll be great. And then suddenly, yeah, just a, a week or so before my 16th birthday, I realised that all of that just wasn't going to happen or, or it wasn't going to pan out the way that I'd imagined it. And whilst it was kind of, it was, it was obviously hugely heartbreaking at the time, yeah. I... I used the energy in a different way of, of saying, well, look, I, I can't change this. I can't fix what's happened as much as I wanted to. If there was a time machine that existed at that point that I could go back in time and, and change things, then, then perhaps I would have done. But, of course, thinking sensibly about it at the time, I thought, well, there's nothing I can do. I have to just carry on. I have to just crack on. I can't sit here and grieve in a ball of distress uh because it's not going to get me anywhere it's it's that takes up an awful lot of energy and it's yeah it's not going to progress me so it was that realization of two things really firstly you can't control what happens in life so therefore make the most of any opportunity you can the second one for me was the desire to well it was the the ability to understand that we as humans are actually quite incredible creatures we can cope with quite a lot of stress and turmoil and upset and in fact this was something i paid reference to in a podcast i recorded recently with two 
global travellers, um, Jackie Ferno and Elsbeth Beard, two incredible ladies that have ridden around the mo- ridden around the world on motorcycles. And we were telling an anecdote story about getting lost, you know, in a in a far flung country where nobody speaks the language. You've got no GPS, you've got no phones. You're ultimately lost, and you burst a tire on your motorbike or your engine's blown. You either sit there and wallow and go, "Oh God, what the hell am I going to do?" or you just try and yeah. get it sorted. And and it was that kind of the conversation went ended up going on to the ability to realize just how strong you are as a person to get that thing sorted and i said in that chat that it sometimes upsets me that for a lot of us it's a bittersweet scenario this one of course but for a lot of us we don't experience true grief like we're not really supposed to lose parents until later in life we're not really supposed yeah. to lose relatives family members brothers sisters until we are adults but for a lot of us of course we do we lose them when we're a lot younger and i think that sometimes when all being well and if life is happy and well let's say you get to your late 50s 60s you start losing parents you start losing people around you that might be the first time you realize just how strong you are and just how capable you are of dealing with that loss and with that grief and for me i had that realization as a 16 year old rather than as a 60 year old and I think because of that, I frequently said, you know, I've, I've now dealt with until perhaps if I one day have kids of my own, I don't know if I will, but perhaps if I one day have kids of my own, up to that point, I have dealt with the most stressful, traumatic, difficult period in my life. And I frequently think back on this. So anything else that comes forward is a breeze in comparison. Yeah. And I find myself doing it. You know, I find myself like we all do getting wrapped up in work scenarios. Sometimes you put yourself under a bit too much pressure. You try and do more than you're capable of at a time and it all starts falling apart and you start getting upset and stressed. And I often find myself just having a little step back and going, no, this, it, it, the, the, you warrant the stress by all means. You're allowed to be stressed. You're allowed to be upset by something, but this is not the most traumatic thing in the world. This is not, yeah. this is not the thing that's going to define your life moving forward. Because in a week from now, in an hour from now, in a year from now, the problem that you think you're facing is chances are it's going to be gone or it's going to be resolved. And therefore, we don't really need to worry that much about it. So, yeah, the kind of that, that, that fearless, but not fearless, the, uh, the quantifiable risk-taking side of me um, it all happened from there, really. And I think... Because of that, it's certainly, I wouldn't say it's the perfect solution to uh, <laughs> to kind of facing challenges in life because, of course, it has it has made me do a few things that have been like, oh, maybe I, maybe I wish I had thought about that a bit more. Um, but equally, it kind of, yeah, gives that strength of knowing that if it all does start crumbling apart and going wrong, yeah. chances are you'll be able to rebuild it and you'll have the kind of emotional strength, the emotional ability. Um, and I do wish, you know, I wish that people would kind of realize that sooner perhaps than later in life because i think we'd all live our lives very very differently if we truly knew how strong we were if we truly knew what we could face at the time that we need to face it we'd all have a very very different outlook on life we'd all have a very different attitude we'd all have a very different relationship with risks and with fears and with uncertainty um but yeah that sadly for me that was what it took but it's and of course whilst it is still very sad and and nearly 16 17 years ago now that happened but i i I still use it as a as a a frequent thing to think about and to reflect on and to use as a a method of of strength to move forward well thank you for sharing that and um you get kind of harks back to something we said before we start recording you said just have fun with it yeah Um, you you, 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 you
I can see where that would just um, it makes sense and just to not not worry too much about stuff. No, it's, it's, that's it. It's it's such an easy thing to say. Don't worry about it. It's such an easy thing to say. And I am fully aware that life is not that simple. Sometimes things can happen which go on for a long time and can be very, very upsetting. But if you have an opportunity somewhere in some aspect of your day-to-day life where you can find joy, you can find happiness, if you've got those friends that mean nothing more to you other than just laughter, then, you know, hold on to them, cling on to them, because it's so it's so important, you know. We we're so many people, especially in this current global climate now, where I feel like everybody's having such a hard time. Everybody is. We've been through the strangest two years in living history with the pandemic. We've come out of the pandemic thinking, "Oh, the world's going to be great again. Like we're going to get back to life." And then suddenly Russia goes and invades Ukraine, and this puts this whole new world of uncertainty on everything. And I feel like I don't know if you agree, but I feel like everyone's kind of like really in a Everyone's kind of waking up each morning going, oh, bloody hell. Like, you know, even if those of us that are doing well with work and those of us that have successful jobs, there's still that kind of niggling thing in the back of your mind that's like, God, this could be better, though, couldn't it? Like, this is unnecessarily stressful when we think about all the things that could happen and could go wrong. But, um, yeah, I I seek solstice a lot in laughter. And um, I am ultimately still, in my head, a, a big kid. And yeah. Um, yeah, the friends. I'm very, very lucky. I have a great network of friends, and and do a lot of really, really quite silly things with cars that bring me a lot of joy and a lot of entertainment. And yeah, if I didn't have that, I'd be again. I'd be a very different person. I think. Motorsport gamers and car enthusiasts alike. Ignition is giving away the chance to win a copy of my favourite racing games: Forza Horizon Five, the Premium Edition, or Gran Turismo Seven, based on what console you have. The rules for this giveaway are simple. For those looking to get their hands on a copy, go to our Instagram page at we are ignition. That is the we letter R ignition. Give us a follow and find your favourite episode. Tag three friends and comment on the game you want. For an additional entry, see our post about the giveaway and share it on your story. The giveaway starts on Friday the 1st of July and ends on the 30th of July. The giveaway is not endorsed by Spotify or Instagram and is entirely separate from those platforms. All rules and regulations will be on the website. And for further information, check the show notes below. Now, back to the interview. Talk about the opportunity of the cars working for Gumball. Yeah. How did that come about? That was a really random one. So, uh, again, that friend Tim that I mentioned. So, Tim... Tim was a graphic designer for Gumball, I think, back in 2005. So he was there kind of in the early years. Bear in mind, Gumball started 1999. He was, the, yeah, so four or five years later, he was involved for a couple of years. Tim then grew up, got married, moved to the South Coast and became a, a proper grown-up. And then at the time that we met, Tim was going through some changes in his life and he decided what he wanted to do was go back to London and work again for Gumball. And it was like this weird, uh, as a kid... Well, as a teenager through the, the early 2000s, you, I was very much aware of what the Gumball Rally was. And it was like yeah. this mysterious underground thing. Uh, I, I, like a lot of people, I think I assumed it was an American thing. And occasionally it came to the UK, but it was this global phenomenon of, a, of an event. And um, yeah, Tim had been in for a chat with Maximilian Cooper, who, of course, is Mr. Gumball 3000. And uh, Max, had a, Max had said, oh, actually, we're looking for a new event person if you know of anyone send them our way so i get a phone call from tim out of the blue 
Um, bear in mind, my events experience up to this point is running track days, the occasional event support, working with other companies. So there was another company that came along uh, about 2011, which is a friend of mine's company called Classic Grand Touring. I was helping him with events. So we were driving to places like Le Mans and helping people on driving holidays and driving tours. But all in all, my experience was limited in the events field as far as I was concerned. And there I was getting a, con- getting a phone call about potentially having a conversation to help run the largest moving motoring event in the world. Um, of course, as a blasé 25-year-old, I would have been at that time, I think. I was like, yeah, like, but I was, I was a realist about it. I didn't for a second think that I'd be going into this office and being offered a job because I was like, I'm just not, I'm not experienced enough. I, don't, I do not have that experience. Uh, but there I was in the office talking to Max. I think I ended up having two or three chats in the office in Notting Hill. Um, and it was Max's sister, Lucinda, who was at the time the events manager. She was like the responsible for the production of the whole event. Um, and I had a number of chats with Lucy. I had a number of chats with Max. And again, I was very honest with them at the time. I said, look, I, I, this is the most exciting idea in the world for me to come and work for you guys. But if you're looking for somebody with a degree in event management and hospitality and road closures and all that sort of stuff like that's not me like i I don't have it i'm sure i can figure it out but it's not me um but the conversations worked you know we we ended up having more and more chats and the next thing i knew i was walking out of my temp jobs i was walking away from call centers and i was going to start a role as event coordinator for gumball 3000 so that was the the conversation started late 2012 and it was early 2013 that i went and sat down at my desk and i had a box of gold black and gold business cards that were landed on my desk john mark our event coordinator for gumball 3000 i was like wow this is this is real this is really really strange so that was ultimately my first full-time job in the world of events and hospitality was working for gumball 3000 and yeah i mean what a mad mad few years i um like so many others that had done the role previously to me thought that i'd be there a year i think the general the standard uh, staff turnover for gumball was somebody would come in ahead of a, a rally so of course a new rally each year somebody would come in to do that role they'd get the rally done it would be so stressful and chaotic that at the end of that rally they'd go do you know what i'm done thank you very much for that opportunity i'm exhausted i'm emotionally drained that was a disgusting assault on my senses i can't do this anymore and they're done and i have it is absolutely no secret that i got to the end of my first rally which was copenhagen to monaco in 2013 and i remember standing on the roof of the fairmont hotel as the F1 was happening, thinking there is no chance in hell I'm ever doing this again because it was utter chaos from start to finish. You can go in with the biggest plan, the best plan in the world to make everything happen, but of course it all falls apart. Um, Well, I say that. It all falls apart from your event production brain side of things because as you plan things, as you envisage things, they don't quite pan out the way that you hoped they would. But for the entrant and for the people spectating and for the media it's amazing they don't see what's gone wrong they don't see what's in your head they see this spectacle of an event which ultimately is made brilliant by the people that attend the cars that drive and the routes that we go on as long as the basis of all the event that you put together works i.e the roads you're closing the city centers you're closing down the hotels that you're taking over as long as all that works which of course they did then it's fine. Everything else just falls into yeah. place. And I think it was on that year, that, that first rally, I had another kind of big, crucial light bulb moment where it came on. 
And I can't remember if this is something I came up with or something somebody else said and I absorbed it. Um, but it's a phrase I use almost daily now when I speak to people on my own production teams or events teams or media teams. And that is, it doesn't matter if everything starts to fall apart. It doesn't matter if things catch on fire. If we're here to build a show, the show must go on because it will go on or the show will go on because it must go on and this is the thing it's so easy to forget that because we can always see that things are falling apart because they're not happening how we imagined it but ultimately it still happens like the the whole production the whole performance the whole event still goes on and yeah i remember getting to the end of that first rally and I was absolutely shattered. I, I had a guy on my events team called Peter who worked out that over the space of 13 days, I'd slept for a grand total of four hours. So I was a broken, oh. broken man. I was absolutely destroyed. The scale of Gumball, for anyone that's unaware of it, is just almost indescribable. You've got three absolutely enormous events that happen every single day for about 10 days. A start line event in the morning a lunchtime checkpoint and a massive car show car display skating demo live concert in the evening every single day for 10 days so it completely knocks it out of you and of course as somebody that was at the kind of higher end of the production level everything that was happening i'd corresponded with every city with every events team with every um road closure hotel everything so of course my phone's just ringing all the time with people going oh just doing some final checks before people arrive or people have arrived and this is what's gone wrong or your event was here yesterday and now we need to follow up on this so it was just constant you know constant 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 and that year we were almost in the same time zone throughout the whole thing when you're on multiple time zones as we were for the next few years it's even more chaotic but um yeah it was that kind of like i got to the end of it i was like no I can't, this isn't me. I'm not, I'm not good enough to manage my own emotions in this world of absolute exhaustion. Um, but what it was for me was I remember getting back home and that's, a, that's down to earth with a bump. I mean, a common phrase that you hear when people go on big events is you get the, the, the post-event come down blues where you've been on this kind of exciting, chaotic thing, a bit like a holiday, really. You get back from holiday and you go yeah. back to the office and you sit in the office and you go... Uh, I'd probably rather be on the beach or I'd rather be exploring some new city. Um, For me, it was like I got back and I was just absolutely exhausted. And in that same mindset of like, there's no way I can do that again. And then I started absorbing the media coverage of the event. I started seeing articles that had been written, videos that had been put together. I was watching the YouTubers that had been on it and watching their videos and suddenly having this moment of going, oh, my God, I did that. Like that, I closed that road. I, I made that street look the way it looked. I planned that route. And, you know, not just me. There was obviously an amazing team of events team as well all around me. But it was like, okay, that was enough for me to start thinking, okay, so for next year, I've learned this, 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 <laughs> and this. I can do that. And so we started doing it. So, for, yeah, for the next two rallies... And the next, yeah, the following two full years, I was, um, I was, yeah, head of the production. So, yeah, looking after all the logistics, looking after road closures, looking after an element of the hotel bookings. We had an events, uh, we had a, a kind of a party team as well that were with us. So yeah. uh, they'd look after the evening functions and parties and DJ sets and stuff. So it was a great team. You know, it was, it was, a, it was a chaotic role for the two, two or three years that I was there. But um, yeah, I certainly wouldn't change it. It was, it was good fun. 
they're brilliant. And so this sort of stress, uh, or stress, maybe it was a lot of management going on. Did that make you want to start your own thing? I mean, you've got Markov Creative. Is that something that maybe blossomed from that experience? Sort of, yeah, sort of. I, I'd always, I think in the back of my head, I'd always had the plan to run my own company. Didn't really know what doing what or why. Um, it was always bound to be something to do with cars. But yeah, following Gumball, once I'd stepped down from Gumball, I, that was a huge decision to make as well, like really difficult one. And of course, in that three years, I'd learned more about the world of events and hospitality and just it was the ultimate role for finding your feet and learning on your feet. Um, I'd done so much there that I was kind of like, whatever I do next is not going to be as chaotic as this. And I need to, I almost need to bring some chaos into my life again. Um, so as a big kind of switch, I actually went into car throttle. I'd left Gumball. I'd started having conversations with Adnan, who at the time was running Car Throttle. And we were getting on like a house on fire, similar sort of age, similar sort of outlook on life. Um, and Adnan had said, well, look, when you've done it, Gumball, like, why don't you come and do some stuff with us here? And do a, yeah. a bit of event stuff, but also a bit of editorial stuff. And again, my experience from doing a little bit of writing paid forward into that. So there I was at Gumball. But in all honesty, I think it was only about four months that I was at, I was at uh, Car Throttle full time. I found myself day to day sitting in an office. And whilst we were still building the creativity of events, we were still planning things. And I was very much enjoying yeah, the role that I had there, which was uh, a community manager, I think was my, my title. And it was kind of that go-to point between the user of the Car Throttle website and the platform. And, and it was fun. It was great. But it wasn't, it didn't fill that hole of creativity and chaos <laughs> that I think I'd I'd kind of outlined for myself up to that point. So I had a very big grown-up conversation with Adnan and um, and the other guys at Carthrott, and I said, look, why don't I carry on as your events guy? I can carry on putting productions on for you guys, but I'm just not busy enough. Like I'm not I'm not waking up every day feeling inspired to go and create. This is very comfortable and very easy. And for a lot of people, it would be the best thing in the world. But for me, it was... It was just a bit too straightforward. So I started, yeah, I started a little company called Markar Creative, and that was utilizing the contacts that I'd made over the years at Gumball and some prior to Gumball and just offering people help. You know, if people wanted help with events, if people wanted help with social media management, um, I was was available to do it. And that's exactly what I did. So I was, yeah, I I took on a number of small clients. Um, Some were great and some were not so great, Um, but it was it was a fantastic experience. It was again, I was back into a chaotic world where each day brought something completely different in a different location. There was a lot of traveling. I started doing a lot more freelance event management as well. So again, that lovely company that I mentioned, Classic Grand Touring, uh, Tom, who was running that at the time, he kind of got me involved with loads of events. So we'd start traveling to Le Mans and we'd start traveling to Monaco Historic Grand Prix. And Mm. it was great. Life was fantastic. We were kind of I was I was out and about doing all sorts of different events and as a freelancer freelancing is like the best and the worst thing in equal measures because on the days that it's great it is the best thing in the world you're your own boss you manage your own time your own diary and you're going off and doing these amazing things with amazing people and then when it goes quiet it's the worst thing in the world because you're like oh god it's all falling apart nobody wants to hire me anymore it's all going wrong uh. so yeah lots of lots of panics lots of like oh god this month I'm earning good money in the next month i'm earning no money um and that was yeah that's that's the joy of freelancing really that's uh, <laughs> there'll be a lot of freelancers listening i'm sure they're like yeah 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 that's exactly it um 
So yeah, that was my world for a good few years. Um, I then based myself up in the Midlands because I started working with a company called Driftworks. And uh, Driftworks are, I think of Driftworks not really as a company anymore, but as a group of mates um, owned by Phil Morrison, who of course runs that absolutely ludicrous GT1 Lamborghini Murcielago as well yep. as various other cars. So Phil um, Phil reached out and, and I got talking to Phil about what I was doing in the events world. And I'd known Phil socially for many, many years previously. So it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a, a cold call. Uh, but Phil at that time was contemplating the idea of building up a YouTube channel. But, and I love reminding him of this now. He, at the time, had absolutely no interest at all. So this is 2016, 17. He had no interest at all at that time to um, have a face on YouTube. Not interested. Yeah. Doesn't want to be a YouTuber. Doesn't want to be seen on YouTube. Doesn't want to go to car events and people to know who he is at all. And the whole time I'm sat there going, you kind of need to do this. Like if you want to build yeah. your personality, if you want to build your brand, if you want people to find you on YouTube, it's you, the person that's going to bring people in rather than the yeah. brand. People are always more likely to follow and engage with a person than they are to follow and engage with a brand. So if you can be the front man for your brand, that'd be great. Anyway, we kind of bullied him into it in the end. And another crucial person, again, the importance of a network of friends. Another crucial person that was involved at that time, again, was Alistair Clark, who started yeah. Mazda on Track. We started doing the Track Day company together. So Al was the kind of in-house video guy for Driftworks, whilst also being a very successful film director elsewhere. I was the in-house uh, social media and video production kind of like YouTube interface guy, uh, as well as doing a few other events and bits and pieces. And and from there, we kind of built, almost accidentally, this little media company within Driftworks. And yeah. it's kind of all dispersed now and gone in our separate ways, but we're all still kind of interlinked into this bizarre family of friends where Driftworks, as the company, is the centre to it all. It's it, That's what holds everybody together. Um, and even to this day, you know, we go and do track days together, we socialise together. Very few of us now work for Driftworks or, or help out, but it's kind of like this this family this amazing group of friends that uh, do all sorts of interesting things together so yeah driftworks has become this really lovely network of friends now um really really great network of people and uh the yeah it's 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 nice it's it's good so um yes whilst i was up there in the west midlands doing bits and pieces with driftworks and a various few other companies that's where again just through pure chance i ended up picking up other opportunities i was working for a uh, a workshop in east london at the same time so quite some <laughs> quite some distance apart uh as a brand manager for them and the the brand was invited to go and feature on a radio show um as a, a kind of come on for 10 minutes and talk about this new brand yeah. um i was put forward as the brand ambassador events guy pr guy uh, go and talk to them, these guys on talk radio about what we're doing. And uh, I did. I went in and sat down for 10 minutes. And then before I knew it, I was a co-host on a radio show for two years. Which and was, that radio show is? Uh, so that what that was, <laughs> that one was called The Motor Show on talk radio with Andy J. Yeah. Um, again, like if you'd have told me the week previously that that's what I'd be doing, I just wouldn't have even guessed it because all it was to me was another another part of my role as a, as a kind of freelancer. It was, um, oh, right, yeah, this week, can you run an event here for us? Next week, can you do some cons consulting for a social media account? Oh, and on Thursday, can you go and sit down on live radio and talk about this brand that you're helping set up? 
So it was like, yeah, 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 whatever. Like, and that was it. So, yeah, I went into this show, which just so happened, it was live, actually. It was a live radio show on a Saturday afternoon, and it was show one of this new radio show. So Talk Radio had just been launched as a radio station, uh, which, was, of course, was the sister station to Talk Sport. And yeah. they'd, yeah, had this new car show presented by Andy J. I'd never met this chap called Andy J before. Um, didn't really know much about him or the show or anything else. But I just, so I walked into it completely completely blind just walked into it as well we'll see what this is all about and i think yeah i think the idea was i was going to sit there for 10 minutes and talk about the sh- this new workshop um and then i ended up staying for another 10 minutes because they were like oh there's this new story that's come out about circlips on porsche pedal boxes would you be able to <laughs> give an opinion on it and i was like yeah of course so i did and then yeah. i think i did my 20 minutes the producer of the show was like oh what are you doing next week like do you want to come back and have another go at it um so i was like yeah like sure um and then yeah then I, obviously i ended up becoming quite good friends with andy the host and before i knew it i was a i was a sidekick on this new radio show so for the next couple of years on and off i was there as a as a host on this thing and again so once again i'm in an environment where i'm sat in as a professional i say with speech marks either side with absolutely no experience no qualifications no prior desire to be on the radio anything like that it was just a kind of a right place right time come and give this a go see how it works out and me going well what have i got to lose in doing that it was one day a week it was a saturday afternoon we'd do the show live and and that was that so yeah that was where my kind of uh accidental birth into the world of media came about and a good few years later it's still going on strangely yeah, that's turned into the big sign that is behind you, which is Driven Chat. Chat yeah. Driven Chat, which is one of my favourites. So thank you for being, and Andy, and all of you guys that are part of it, for being such a, a great team of commentators and uh, car enthusiasts. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's, uh, again, it was a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a happy accident. But yeah, there was a, there was a good stint of time between that radio show and then Driven Chat happening. Um, I thought at the end of my the two years so early 2018 that show came to an end because just as they do you know you run to a cycle and then the, the radio show replaces you with Stefan Dom from uh, <laughs> from, <laughs> from a different from that reality show about hotels um, but oh. that was that you know I was like do you know what that was a great that was really enjoyable I wasn't sad about it coming to an end or anything like that it was like yeah I've done that that was brilliant something to tick off the list um, went off and worked in the back in the events world again and, and did a load of different bits and pieces uh, which was, a, yeah, quite a crucial chapter. But it was actually, yeah, it was the pandemic that brought brought us all back together again um, because we, like so many people in the world, had been working in jobs and, and running companies and doing bits and pieces that all just had to come to a big stop. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I was I was running a event company again, um, which suffered catastrophically with the pandemic and uh, yeah i needed a I, I needed something else to do and andy j phoned at exactly the right time and said well look we're doing this do you want to have a go and that was that perfect and you mentioned earlier about your ability to plan so i, I always like to ask what, what do you see for yourself in the future where would you like to be it's so hard to say it really is because i think because i've had i haven't really had much of a plan up to now i've always known i think there's a great reassurance actually in believing in yourself or believing that everything's going to be okay. And again, this goes right back to 
again, as a 15 turning 16 year old and losing a parent, that there's a, you can hear family members, you can hear friends, you can hear anyone around you that loves you and supports you all saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Everything's going to work out and it's going to be okay. And you can hear that a million times and it could be a million times it can fall on deaf ears. It's the moment that you say it to yourself that's when it really matters. It's the moment that you have the, this kind of instant of going, actually, do you know what? I am going to get through this and it is going to be yeah. okay. And I haven't actually got that much to worry about. That's the one that matters. Not your dad, not your sister, not your cousins, not your best friends from school. Who all, Of course, they're all saying it with love and they all say it because they mean it and they're right. But it's mm-hmm. until you can say it to yourself. And I think that is one thing that I've now become very good at is getting myself into a situation of uncertainty or difficulty or stress and having that ability to kind of look at yourself in the mirror and not, you know, not in a kind of weird way, but that, that hypothetical look yourself in a mirror and go, but it's going to be grand. Like you're going to, yeah. you're going to figure it out. The show will go on because the show must go on. And for that reason, I wouldn't say I've got much of a plan. I haven't got much of a hit list. I haven't got a target to one day I want to do this. I think for me, it's just I want to continue doing what I do and networking with the people that I network with and sharing the opportunities. And for me, one of the biggest things that I get out of this world, knowing that I have ultimately blagged my way from start to where I am now, and I will continue to blag my way onwards is that I love helping other people and people that come forward and say, oh, I'm thinking about doing this or I'd love to have a go at that. And it could be anything from writing to social media management to I just want to build a social media account or I want to start a podcast. And I always am happy to be that person to offer a bit of wisdom or advice. It might be complete nonsense a lot of the time, but it's that I love reminding people that I had no plan. I had no qualifications to do it for me it's just been a case of meeting the right people at the right time and building up on those relationships the most powerful thing you can ever do as a person in any industry is be in contact and communication with the right people you can't do it alone you can't just go out and conquer the world on your own you need people around you that can support you that can advise you that can help you grow and and help you flourish um so yeah i I don't know what the uh, what the goal is. I, don't, I still don't know what yeah, I want enough. to be when I grow up, but I know that it'll be all right. And I know that chances are, providing I keep the, the same group of friends around me and I, I grow that network of friends, we'll have a really good time doing it as well, which is, to me, all that matters. Perfect. And I know we're coming to the end and I almost don't want it to come to the end, but um, we I've got a few questions I'd like to ask. Yeah. And the first one of those being your ultimate three-car garage. Okay. Ferrari F40, without any shadow of a doubt Straight or away. hesitation, um, just because it, for many reasons, it is exactly the same age as me to the year, 1987. It was my, um, it was one of my poster cars or model cars that I had. Mm. Um, I think there'd have to be some sort of BMW M product because I don't think it's much of a secret. Anyone that follows me on social media will see that every other post is relating to some sort of ropey 1990s BMW M car. Um, CSL M3 E46 is probably up there maybe with a manual gearbox conversion but I am going to be one of those rare unusual people that says I actually don't mind SMG so uh, yeah CSL M3 it's got to be there and then I guess I'd probably need something a bit more sensible daily 
Um, I, this, this one changes probably weekly. So if you were to ask me next week, it would change. But there is something quite appealing about the idea of a Range Rover um, just because it's a comfortable car that does everything. And that really goes against a lot of what I believe. I'm, I'm a bit anti-SUV, but the rule being, the, the rule I usually go down, if the SUV is a modified, taller version of a perfectly good estate car that already exists, then that's not okay. But if it's a car that is not a perfectly normal estate, that is okay. So therefore, the Range Rover, for that reason, gets away with it. Um, yeah, that said, I am potentially looking at an X5 as a company car very shortly, and that goes against everything that I believe in. So, yeah, it's a chaotic one. So, yeah, F40, CSL M3, E46, and a new, um, if money's no object, long wheelbase Range Rover, ideally in dark green. Lovely. <laughs> and this might be a slightly harder one because you've been through a through Gumball, mm. quite a few places and quite a few roads. But if you had to pick one road or track and you've got one car, where are you going and what are you taking? Well, that is a very, very good question. Um I think car-wise, to do a car that does everything very well, it would be a GT3 911. Um, I've been very, very lucky over the years to drive many of them. I've not yet owned one myself, but I, I would love to. Um, so a 997 Gen 2 GT3. And um, I'd say, I know it's going to be like such a cliche, obvious answer, but I'm going to say the Nürburgring, but not because it's a like mystical, far-flung place. I know that I know the area very well. And, and as, a, as somebody that's been visiting there as, since a teenager, I've come quite close to the community of people around it. So for me, I'd yeah. say, yeah, GT3 and the Nürburgring, but it's about more than just the, the track itself, more than just the road. It's about the the people around it, that, that little community yeah. of people that makes it so special. So, yeah, I think that would be that would be my answer without any prior thought at all. Brilliant. And lastly, if you were to give one piece of advice to someone listening to inspire them mm. to do more of their passion, what would it be? Network. Network, network, network. Be interested and be interesting. With those two qualities chances are you can't go wrong if you have genuinely got a passion for this industry in any respect whether you want to be an event organizer if you want to work in pr if you want to work in design if you want to work in engineering not just automotive but any any aspect of your life that you want to go into be interested be interesting and talk to as many people as you can make friends you know this is i've said it more times than i care to count now on my own podcast on driven chat and on the radio show as well we say, uh, I, I find myself saying it, we are so lucky in this world of automotive to be in a passion-led industry. It is completely consumed by people that love cars. And that's yeah. the only reason they're here. And there aren't many other industries in the world where you can say the same thing. Um, but everyone from the guy that designs the next Bugatti or the next McLaren right the way through to the person on the events team for a small track day company. We are all in this world because ultimately we love cars. And that is the biggest catalyst to a conversation that you can ever imagine. Meaning that if you go to an event, if you go to um, a venue, a, a cafe in a machine or a, a race event or a track day, you know full well that you can walk up to whoever is there who might have parked up in a cool car or just something a bit classic, a bit cool, and have a conversation with them. And you never, ever know where that conversation is going to go. At the time that I met Al Clark in a pub in Wimbledon, <laughs> as, as you do, I never would have believed or thought that 
years down the line, the two of us would be running businesses together, traveling the world together, doing other bits and pieces in the same way that the day that I remember seeing my, my mate Tim Hutton drive into a Nürburgring car park in, a, in an Aston Martin press car, there's no way that at that point I would have believed, again, we would have run businesses together, traveled the world together, explored you know, most, most far-flung corners of the world in cars together. And you never know who that next person's going to be. I might meet somebody this afternoon. I might meet somebody. It might be you, Harry. You know, it, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinatingly brilliant world where we can do so much simply by being social people. So yeah. that is my advice. It's, yeah, be interested, be interesting, and talk to everyone. Become everyone's friend. Be supportive. It just, at that point, it all just happens, and it's great. Oh, thank you very much. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you for your time. No, thank you. Absolute pleasure to be here. Now, that for me was probably one of the best conversations I have had on the podcast. You never know where these conversations will lead when talking to people as brilliant as John. He has taken such a tragic time in his life and made it into a beautiful skill. It's possibly the reason he enamors so many people. John calls it the gift of the gab, but for me, it's how he comes across as so genuine and relatable. He's someone you can learn a lot from, if not how he takes life by the cuff and doesn't see fear as a reason not to, but a reason to do. And if you take one thing away from today's episode, let it be that you are interested in everyone you meet and you are interesting. And not only that, you become friends with everyone. Because it's something that I'm learning. Believe it or not, I shy away from meeting people. But you may not believe that coming from a podcast host, but it's something I'm working on. And... I will definitely be listening to this chat over and over again just to go over over what John says about networking and how you cannot conquer the world alone. Now, if you want to hear more of these conversations, please give us a follow on Spotify. If you want to find John, he is on Instagram at John Marker, or you can find him on the various episodes on YouTube at Driven Chat, the podcast as well, and the radio show on TalkSport too. And if you want to find us, we are on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Instagram and TikTok is We Are Ignition, and YouTube is Just Ignition. So with that being said, this is the Ignition Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's or any of our other episodes, please share them with at least three people you know who are in the car trade, love cars, or just find them interesting. If we can get one more person to listen, that's one more person in my mission to help inspire people to do more with their passion for cars. Cars.